the NTU would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wajuk Noongar people. We would like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and to note that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome back to Bargain Hunters for episode six, part two. We're talking about protected industrial action at Curtin University. As you'll be aware, in the last episode, we discussed the road to the Parbo, why we're pursuing that action. In this episode, uh, myself and Scott Fitzgerald, the branch president at Curtin University, will be discussing recent events that have occurred due to Curtin uh, management um, objecting to the questions that have been put on the ballot order requested by the NTU, which led to a hearing at the Fair Work Commission, uh, and that has led to um, a decision by the Honourable uh, Deputy President Benet at the Fair Work Commission to remove a series of questions from the ballot that will be put to Curtin staff. We're going to hear in a little while an interview that we pre-recorded with the NTU's Director of Industrial and Legal, Kelly Thomas. Kelly provides us with um, a really precise but clear and simple overview of the process, what Benet's decision means, how usual this kind of a decision is within the sector, and what the NTU is doing to rectify the situation. Before we get into that interview, Scott, would you mind giving us a little bit of an overview of Curtin's objections and the hearing itself? Yeah, sure, Francis. So the hearing took place on Monday the 19th of September uh, and there were three objections that Curtin management raised. The first was uh, our use of a ballot ballot agent that had been used in multiple protected action ballot orders before. Um, They questioned the reliability of that ballot agent. And the second aspect was the range of questions for action that we were proposing to members. We had 10 in all. They objected to seven, I believe. In the end, eight were knocked out by the final decision, which leaves us with the first two, which were uh, limited forms of work stoppage or indefinite forms of work stoppage. Uh, And finally, there was a a more technical objection, again, relating to the balloting agent, um, TrueVote. So basically, Curtin Management have said that even though the PABO itself is, is somewhat of an internal process... It's the NTU putting a set of questions to its members to say, in principle, not getting into any of the details, what forms of protected action would you like to do? We provided 10 questions asking, are you willing, in principle, to do X form of industrial action? Some of them were fairly mild, including a ban on responding to phone calls or emails, a ban on attending Curtin University events, and some were a little bit more militant or would have a more disruptive impact, for instance, as you said, work bans. So, you know, effectively strike action. And so Curtin University's objection was that the questions did not give them a sufficient amount of information in order to plan around industrial action, but also that they believed Curtin University staff wouldn't be able to make an informed decision about what they were voting for because the questions were themselves too vague. And that motivated them to hire a legal firm, Mills Oakley, in order to take their objection to the Fair Work Commission. That resulted in a hearing. Um, So people are wondering, you know, somewhat like a court court hearing at the Fair Work Commission. And myself 
you and Sean Flynn, our um, Deputy President for Professional Staff at the branch, provided uh, witness statements to say that we understood what the questions meant. You know, we said, you know, hand on heart, hand on the Bible. I, I do know what a phone call is and I do know what it means to not answer the phone. And that motivated Curtin to cross-examine us at the Fair Work Commission via their, via their legal representatives. What, what was the cross-examination like, Scott? Oh, look, the only term I can use was bizarre. Um, it asked for our understanding of some, some fairly basic questions. Uh, as I, um, we'll talk about later, one of the questions was responding to a phone call. Uh, we were proposing a ban on responding to phone calls and the, and the, um, the lawyer for Curtin Management was, was pursuing us in terms of how could we possibly know what a response to a phone call is and intimating that a response to a phone call could be an indefinite series of events. Um, we saw it as quite straightforward. You hear something ringing, um, you pick up the phone and you answer, that would be a response. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's of course difficult to know exactly what motivated the particular questions we were asked, but the logic underpinning them seemed to be that if someone were to vote for a ban on responding to the phone that could then end up playing out as a ban on all sorts of actions. You know, staff wouldn't know if someone calls me and then they come and knock on my door, am I allowed to open the door? Am I allowed to walk out of my office? What, what am I allowed to do and not do? I think you're right to use the word bizarre. It, it, it was, I think, when I was talking to you earlier, you were saying it was, it was kind of Kafkaesque, being in this strange hearing, being asked, you know, what, what do you mean you know what a, what a curtain event is and what it means to not attend one? But unfortunately, despite it being such a sort of surreal process, um, the decision didn't go in the NTU's favour. And so the Honourable Benet decided that um, other than questions relating to work stoppages, we could not allow our members to um, vote uh, on the other questions. And that has now led to the NTU appealing um, the decision, something that, that Kelly will talk a little bit more about in the interview. Is there anything else you want to add, Scott, before we, we cut across to the interview with Kelly? Well, just that this is a fundamental right of all workers um, and we will be pursuing that right. Um, so we will, in the interim, be working towards protected action. Uh, what we have left presently on the table is limited work stoppages or extended work stoppages. Now, how that will look in practice um, will depend upon our, our discussion with members, but I would, I would uh, underline this could be a work stoppage from 15 minutes up to an hour uh, and used at strategically important times. So despite the fact that we've had that setback, it doesn't mean that we will stop fighting for our rights um, and stop fighting for the, the employment conditions that you deserve as NTU members. Yeah, that's a great point, Scott, because our perspective at the bargaining table is very much that management are preparing an agreement that is not going to deal with the substantive issues that our members want rectified. We've done everything we possibly can to reason with them at the bargaining table and show that the clauses we're putting forward are not only financially feasible, but they'll improve the place and they'll help us reach the goals that were set out in the 2030 strategic plan. We've not received much love at the bargaining table and so we've done the only rational thing, which is to ask our members what they want us to do. They've directed us to pursue protected action and that has somehow resulted in you know, us in the dock being interrogated by Curtin's lawyers. So it does make clear that Curtin um, are not only at the bargaining table unwilling to listen to the NTU's clear 
representation of its membership and what its membership is angry about, but that if the membership try to do anything about it, curtain will stand in their way. And so I think even though a lot of our members wanted a greater range of protected action to choose from, and we are going to appeal to make sure that we get that right back for them, if at the end of the day strike action is the only option we have, we need to take it seriously because it looks like that's the only option management you know, want to give us. And at the end of the day, we need to make sure Curtin University is a place still worth working at. I couldn't agree more, Francis. I mean, at the end of the day, it's to use a uh, phrase I heard just the other day, it's all about making a difference, making a difference for the people, the planet and partnerships. So we, we in, in this regard, we don't have much choice. All right. Well said, Scott. Let's cross over now to our interview with the NTU Director of Industry and Legal, Kelly Thomas. Kelly, thanks for joining us on Bargain Hunters. Um, I was wondering if you could give a brief introduction. Yeah. Hi, Scott and Francis. Um, My name's Kelly Thomas. I am from the a national industrial unit in the national office of the NTEU. Um, I've been an industrial lawyer for um, 12 years, 13 years or something now. So um, been representing unions for a long time um, and workers in the struggle. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Kelly. And we really appreciate um, all of the help you've been giving, you know, behind the scenes to Curtin NTU members. Uh, but we also appreciate your time this morning because we know you're really busy. I was wondering whether or not you could give a brief summary of Benet's decision um, w- without getting too technical or too legalistic. How would you summarise for members what the outcome of the hearing with Deputy President Benet was? Um, yeah, look, I think um, I think the decision is, is disappointing and troubling. Um, Disappointing because uh, the the approach that the deputy president took um, to the question at hand, which was determining whether or not NTU members could make an informed choice about the types of industrial action. I mean, that's simply what the legal test is. You've got the, the questions there to be balloted. Can the people who are answering it or responding to those questions um, understand it sufficiently to, um, to answer yes or no. Uh, so that's the legal test. The approach that the Deputy President took um, is somewhat, uh, you, you know, she responded to Curtin's um, objections. So that's the first thing I should say. It's, it's disappointing that Curtin University decided to even object to the application for the protective action ballot. Um, because really this is an internal union process. So we, you know, it is quite disappointing, I think, that um, the Deputy President even um, entertained the objections from Curtin University. Uh, The troubling aspect is that the result, this decision, um, can even be possible through the laws that we currently have. So... The outcome or the result of the Deputy President's decision was that of the 10 questions that NTU union members had decided to ballot for, only two of those questions could actually appear on the ballot. And the Deputy President decided that that eight of those questions 
could not form part of the ballot questions, which would then limit the types of industrial action that NTU members could take in support of the bargaining for the new enterprise agreement. And the effect of that is that the, in order to have industrial action that is protected, it has to be first balloted. So any of these other types of industrial action that union members want to take, which I'll go into in a second, is actually would actually be unprotected because the only two forms of industrial action that would have been balloted under this decision were strike actions. So strike actions in in between the periods of time of five minutes and 24 hours or indefinite and strike Kelly, actions. Kelly, do, do you mind if I just ask, I know that the majority of people in the union movement find this system to be overly bureaucratic and to make it very mm-hmm. difficult for uh, workers to gain access to their rights. But if, if we were to offer the best possible sort of good faith interpretation of the system that we have, are these questions being put to the Fair Work Commission purely to make sure that there are no workers or union members, to be more precise, who would receive those questions in a ballot and genuinely be unsure as to what to do. I mean, I'm only asking this question just because I think for a lot of people listening, they'll not really even understand why the Fair Work Commission even gets involved at this point. If it's just the union, you know, balloting our members to say, what do you want to do? Why does Fair Work get involved at all? Yeah, look, it's such a great question. And it's a product of um, when John Howard was uh, workplace relations minister and and prime minister that it was um, uh, literally a bureaucratic process inserted into the into the act the workplace relations act in order to stymie and slow down the ability for unions to take industrial action and is literally designed to slow down and to stop um, members from taking industrial action so there's there's quite a few steps involved obviously you've got to apply for the order. The order needs to tell someone to do to conduct the ballot. Then 50% plus one of the membership need to vote in each of the types of industrial action to to take that industrial action before actually deciding that they do want to take industrial action, and then having to give three clear days notice of the intention to take industrial action. So it, it is really troubling that this is still. A, a a part of of our laws that the that both the Fair Work Commission need to be involved and further that that employers have an opportunity to interfere with something that is essentially union business. This is a this is a worker decision about whether or not to take industrial action. And the bizarre outcome of um, Howard's moves all those years ago is that we're now being asked whether or not we understand what responding to a phone call is which is the strangest thing I've ever been involved in. I don't know if you want to talk about the actual challenges we've faced in the hearing, Kelly? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that is the most bizarre aspect of this, that that Curtin, first of all, raised that, that, that union members couldn't understand the types of industrial action that were proposed to be balloted, including things like a ban on responding to phone calls or emails. Um, now, that just seems very self-explanatory to me. I have to admit that I was very surprised that Curtin University took the approach that it did to say that that, that, that couldn't be understood 
by its own staff members. Um, and we saw in the cross-examination of you both the sort of granular level in which that uh, type of industrial action was put to you with all these different scenarios and, you know, that it, it, whether or not responding is answering the phone or replying to a phone call or whether or not it's um, responding to voicemails or whether or not it's okay if someone knocks on your door to ask you the same question. It, the, the purpose of the ballot is not to not to think about every single type of industrial action that could be um, taken under the the um, authorization of the ballot, but just to say yes, we agree that type of industrial action could be taken. Yeah. So just to jump in there again, Kelly. So uh, I was asked if someone knocking on my door would in fact be interpreted as responding to a phone call. I mean, this is the sort of level of questions that we were we were. Uh, experiencing at the commission that was quite 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 bizarre yeah and, and kelly I, I i really thank you for providing that clarity because my concern is that the way curtain management have characterized what occurred at the fair work commission is that the union provided a series of questions on the ballot that because they didn't go into the specifics of you know on what day would you be willing to do this or at what time or for how long that we had somehow been negligent or um, potentially even put our own members in harm's way by not getting into mm. super granular detail. But it sounds like from what you're saying, at this level of the process, it's really about, in principle, let's not get into the weeds of exactly what we're going to do, but in principle, would you support this kind of industrial action, yes or no? And then there's a second process in terms of implementing that action. And at that stage, we do have to tell both members and the employer this is when we're thinking of doing it for how long, who will be involved, et cetera. Is that, is that correct? That's exactly right, Francis. So the, the purpose here is just for union members to be able to say, yes, I would like to stop doing that type of, of, of work in the form of industrial action, but no, I don't want to do that. So, for instance, it's, it's quite common in ballots like this where staff are super keen to to show the employer exactly how serious they are about bargaining, to say, look, we're only voting for strike action. We're not going to worry about, you know, whether or not we'll we'll answer phone calls. We're just going to go straight to strike action. And that's quite common, particularly in other industries, where where partial work bans or, or, or um, bans on performing particular duties don't have the same kind of effect as walking straight off the job and, and taking that, that really clear industrial action, which is as we know, a human right. So the, 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 the part of the process that we're at here is, do you authorise this type of industrial action? A later part of the process is we notify that on X day, you won't be attending that Curtin University graduation ceremony um, because, you know, the members um, will be engaging in, um, in this industrial action. So we... And we we maintain that the 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 act is structured in a way that the notice is when the university gets that opportunity to respond and um and to and to go okay well this is the impact on our business now we need to pivot and do this and um so on and so forth but that they don't get that notification at the time of the ballot because otherwise what's the point they no, <laughs> they have months. And Kelly, that, again, that's that's such um, that's such an important point you've just made because what it clarifies is that 
Curtin University NTU members, in talking to the, the local branch and in talking to their representatives, made clear that they would like to have a series of options in terms of protected action from yep. fairly mild forms of action to much more militant forms of action, as you said, with work stoppages. Um, and that Curtin management, their lawyers and the Fair Work Commission have effectively, at least for now, at least at this point of, in, in time, have put Curtin NTU members in the position of only being able to consider whether or not they want to take strike action or not. So in a way, um, as, as you put it so perfectly earlier, what should really be an internal process about members voting for what they feel is reasonable and what they're willing to do has now become a situation where Curtin Management and the Fair Work Commission have effectively said, do you want to take strike action, yes or no? That's that's your only option now. Correct. That's exactly right. Kelly, g- given that this is such a you know bizarre set of circumstances, what would be your thoughts about this decision with regards to the historical norms within the sector? Because something I, I, w- I'm, I mean, I'm always impressed by, and I wish more of our members got to see sort of behind the scenes just how much work and dedication occurs um, outside of Curtin in the, in the broader union. I mean, I know you, yourself, you were through, I think, Zoom or Teams, you were present in at the Fair Work Commission until uh, midnight in Melbourne at the time of the hearing. So th- this enormous amount of work has gone into making sure the questions that we put to um, our members have been looked at rigorously from both a legal and an industrial standpoint. So given that all that work went into the process, is, is this... I don't want to say unprecedented, but is this, you know, highly irregular to have an employer and to have the com- uh, the commission sort of interfere at this point in the process? Yeah, um, it's a good question. We have, um, you, you're quite right in the sense that we've had quite a um, a lot of experience doing these ballots because we've had to over the last couple of decades. Um, and uh, over that time, it does mean that we've been able to sort of perfect our questions um, and and make them what we think to be, you know, very robust. Um, the, uh, the opportunity for employers to object is always there. Um, in this particular round, um, I'm aware of one other university, no, sorry, I beg your pardon, two other universities who raised objections but then withdrew them. So this is the only time that um, in this round, that an employer has objected to the questions being put on the ballot, and that the commission has upheld those those objections. So it is highly irregular, and and partly that is in recognition of the fact of of who this of the cohort of workforce here. You know, professional staff and academic staff are incredibly educated um, people possibly the most highly educated in the country. And um, that the questions that we ask reflect the culture and, and, and that level of education in, in our membership. So we really are surprised when employers do try and object. I mean, surprised in the sense of um, really, you know, <laughs> we, we all know that this is something that we have to do and it's part of the process but not surprised because it actually does just highlight that employers use this as a tool to try and avoid or deter members from using one of the greatest levers that they have in bargaining for an enterprise agreement. So 
my perception from Curtin University Management's intervention here is that they really don't want NTU members to take industrial action. They are scared of it. And I think that we should be alive to that. That's a great point, Kelly. And I, I did find it um, galling when I was sat um, in the hearing being being cross-examined by Curtin's um, lawyers that at the end of this process, Curtin University staff will be asked to vote as to whether or not they endorse the new agreement, which is a highly technical and it's a highly complicated legal document. Um, I've got every confidence that our, our members and, and even non-members at Curtin are absolutely competent enough to make an informed decision about the agreement. They're very engaged. As you said, they're, they're highly educated people. So it was bizarre that this whole process is in the service of staff having an opportunity to vote on whether or not they think the agreement reflects what they need to, to do their jobs at Curtin. And yet management mm-hmm. took the paternalistic view that uh, it wouldn't be sufficiently clear to staff, for instance, what uh, a ban on attending Curtin events meant. So that there seemed to be something quite cynical in the idea that, um, you know, at the end of the day, we will be voting on whether or not we endorse this highly complicated legal document. But do Curtin staff really know what an event is or what it means to attend or not attend an event? Yeah, that's right. And and I think um, the other the other point that I would say is, and, and, the, and the, the event, uh, the ban on attending events or participating in events is, um, is really quite clear because what what the university is getting at there is they would like the ballot to list out every single event that they think that in the, that uh, union members will um, put a ban on. And the effect of that is, is to allow them months and months and months of time to prepare alternatives to union members from taking that action. Now, one of the, one of the reasons why industrial action is, is, the, is one of the greatest levers available to workers is because it disrupts employers' businesses. That's the purpose of it. And to give them more time than three days' notice, um, they were trying to circumvent that. And given that, um, you know, as you've said, industrial action, protected industrial action, is a um, legitimate um, tool to, to use in bargaining and to use in negotiation, and given how much... Uh, this this uh, decision will impact Curtin members. Can you tell us anything about the appeal that the NTU is pursuing with regards to Benet's decision? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as soon as we got the decision, we sort of responded very quickly um, to see if there were any grounds that we could appeal upon um, to the full bench of the Fair Work Commission. Um, and... This Tuesday, we have filed that appeal um, against the Deputy President's decision because we think that um, she has made errors in in the process of her decision-making and those are reflected in the reasons that she's given. Uh, so we will now go to a hearing before the full bench in, in late October um, and we'll need to do some preparation work in advance of that, developing our legal arguments and so forth, um, which is, um, you know, the fun part for me. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, hopefully that we'll be able to convince the full bench to um, overturn this decision and to um, to issue a new order in its place to, um, to ensure or to allow all, all of the questions that we're seeking to um, uh, NTU members at Curtin to be balloted upon. 
And, and Francis and Kelly, can I just uh, remind our listeners that, I mean, we're at this stage where we're considering protective action because curtain management has failed to meet us even halfway at the bargaining table on any of our claims or clauses. We're considering action because of that, and the response from management has been to um, employ, when we talk about curtain lawyers, uh, this is an external law firm, Mills Oakley, uh, that was there for at least seven hours at the Fair Work Commission uh, a few Mondays ago. Who knows how much that costs, but this is the length to which curtain management appears to be going to make sure that curtain staff, NTU members, don't get a fair hearing, um, don't get fair outcomes through the bargaining process. Yeah, and I think I think that's why it's really important for us to appeal it and and to, and to show, you know, we, we this is such an important right. It's such an important right for all workers and also for Curtin University um, NTU members. And and we want to make sure that you have the that ability um, to take any form of industrial action that that the members so choose. Kelly. Thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. And I'd also like to thank you and your team on behalf of all Curtin NTU members for the extraordinary amount of work you're all putting in. Um, I, I can say again, as someone who was at the hearing, that it was just awe-inspiring to see how dedicated, uh, passionate and professional um, NTU's industrial officers and, and um, um, legal officers are. And I think, again, it, it's it's a shame that all of our members don't get to see just how much work goes on behind the scenes. But um, it, it was just so reassuring to know that when management is pursuing these decisions that will adversely affect our members, that the NTU um, immediately springs into action. And so, like I said, thank, thanks again for, for all your incredible work. Oh, no worries. Um, yeah, it was absolutely our pleasure. Um, and and we will definitely try and um, correct this injustice for Curtin University um, uh, union members. And also, before we go, I just wanted to say a big shout out to you both. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast. Um, you guys are very funny and fun. So thank you for doing this. Thanks, Kelly. I think you're the first person to refer to Scott or I as um, fun, but we'll take that compliment. Hey, we'll, hey, we'll, hey, definitely, hey. <laughs> we'll definitely take that compliment. <laughs> Thanks again, Kelly, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay, lovely. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye.